independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Welcome to Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong, and you are listening to the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Robbie Folks. Robbie Folks is a sort of Latter-day Renaissance man. After spending his formative years in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Virginia, Folks eventually settled in Chicago, where his fresh take on American Roots music established his status as one of the progenitors of what would become the alt-country genre. Folks' fearless and uncompromising approach to his art is exemplified by a longtime association with insurgent country record label Bloodshot Records and a friendly working relationship with Firebrand Chicago-based producer and engineer Steve Albini. In the last 20-plus years, Folks has released 13 albums of his own, as well as accompanied numerous other artists both on stage and in the studio. Folks is also known as a music journalist, having penned a blog and had his writing published in GQ, Blender, Chicago Reader, and elsewhere. When he wasn't playing, recording, or writing, Folks has hosted an XM satellite radio interview and performance program and spent 12 years teaching at the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. But it is Folks' whip-smart songwriting, high lonesome Buddy Miller-esque vocals, and facile and inventive guitar work that first earned him fans in Chicago's underground country music scene. And it's what keeps them coming back to shows across the country. Welcome to Independence Day, Robbie Folks. Hey, Robbie. How are you, man? Hey, I'm great. How are you, Joe? I'm great. I'm great. It's nice to talk to you. It's been a while since I've been in front of a microphone like this. It's nice to be back in the saddle, so to speak. And I just learned, I, I saw you, we became Facebook friends not too terribly long ago. Right. Chicagoans both, right. you and I, or at least were at one point. So I died in the wool, I suppose. But you've recently relocated out to this town. And I was surprised to learn that. Because I, I, when I think of you, I lived there for so long and associated you so much with that Chicago hideout scene and what was going on there. So first of all, welcome to California. Thank you. Uh, second of all, why? Why, why come west? Well, I kind of tagged along with my wife and uh, we became empty nesters. Our youngest moved out and we thought, uh, where do we want to go? We, we thought we'd go to a um, an industry town, so to speak, because she's an actor and I'm a musician. And uh, so we thought, well, will it be New York, Nashville, or here? And anyway, for various yeah. reasons, we decided on here. And it's interesting to me now that you're talking about it because um, if I end up staying here until death, then it'll it'll kind of work out in uh, in thirds that I was born and raised on the East Coast and got old and died on the west coast and the whole middle portion right the prime of my life would have been spent in the mid in midwest so i'll be sort of a well-rounded american by the time right. they bury me and you well you keep moving west in a slow glacial process but you know that's <laughs> yeah. the thing like you kind of run out of land after a while right yeah you know i always feel like i don't know if you haven't been here that terribly long but like there's some like if you get to venice area of la there's some kind of like there's a funkiness like a funky vibe to that and i feel like there's a thing with like drifter types and adventurers and wanderers and wanderers kind of so they see in America at least they seem to tumble west. Mm -hmm. You know, they're following the weather, they're following artistic endeavors, they're following palm trees, whatever, I don't know, following the sun itself. But I feel like they get to Venice and they kind of pile up. You know, because it's like they keep tumbling west and they're like that kind of that kind of thing foments a creative vibe. I don't know, I keep using the word vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I like I played at a couple of those bars out there since I've moved here, like uh, right more or less on the beach. Uh, Playa del Mar was that mm -hmm. the name of the place, and uh, Manhattan uh, Beach, and uh, and I've been to Venice a couple times. And uh, people that don't live here uh, might not. Well, obviously, LA is a big place, but my experience of LA from living in Silver Lake and and now we're in in Glendale, it's like it's worlds away from that world of the beach. You go out to the beach, right. and you're looking into uh, these these dive bars with uh, with uh, pieces of boats from the 18th century, you know, hung on the walls. It's a very uh, it's just like a dip into the into the past, and the kind of people that you meet out there uh, seem like a raunchier, earthier people than you meet Definitely. here. Yeah, well, I don't know if you've found this yet, but like when I moved to L.A., even before I was out here, I was touring through here and playing shows here and staying with friends, couch surfing, adventuring, wandering. And what I learned, you know, L.A. gets a bad rap in the Midwest. 
I feel like. I mean, when I run, I, for years when I would run into people in Chicago, it's like, oh, LA, LA sucks. The bad rap is traffic and uh, what, what else? Uh, plasticine people, vapid yeah, show people, business show business, uh, nice weather, you know, gold, gold grill teeth and, and mm-hmm. you know. And I, when I got here, I learned something wholly different. Uh, especially as a Midwesterner coming to this town. There's a lot of Midwesterners here, so you'll feel right at home there. There's a whole like expat community here. Uh, the the it's uh, what am I what am I getting at here in terms of this? It's it's very diffuse here. You know, Chicago is Chicago and certainly has its neighborhoods. You know, there's very ethnic neighborhoods in Chicago, especially the South Side. There's like the Polish neighborhood and the Lithuanian neighborhood, and and in LA there's some of that, but it's just. You know, white people are the minority for one thing here, mm-hmm. and but it's just it's so there's so many different little identities as you travel because it's huge, it's mm-hmm. absolutely huge here, and you're somewhat centrally located for now, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'd be cur- I'd, I'd be curious to check back in with you in about four years, two years maybe. See we'll if, make a date. See, we will make we'll make we'll grab a pint and we'll we'll check up and see like what because I'd be curious to know if your experience is similar to mine about discovering this town and all the different layers that it has. Because it's not, I mean, sure, there are vapid people here, for sure. Um, there are palm trees. My blood has thinned in terms of the weather, but I do not I do not miss icicles and I do not miss snowblowers. You know, my, uh, the experience would be really different uh, if you lived uh, three miles this way, three miles that way. And this is true of any big town because uh, I was out on a, uh, on a brief tour the other week with three... Um, black ladies, and I say they're black because it's it's relevant to the to the anecdote. Uh, I'd never um, I'd never been out touring with black people for whatever reason in my life. I guess because I do this country music or whatever. But uh, these ladies, when I go to pick them up, I find myself in neighborhoods in Chicago that you don't see from the highway that you don't know exist, and it's a little bit of this August Wilson land uh, in that it's beautiful. Uh, middle-class black neighborhoods in the middle of larger black neighborhoods. And I find myself, um, well, you know what I'm talking about. You're all of a sudden on a block in a neighborhood of Chicago that if I lived here, um, just my whole experience and idea of Chicago would be totally different from right. the neighborhoods that I lived in before. And that's so true of here, too. I mean, it's, as you say, it's like, a, it's like a totally Mexican neighborhood over here, a beach neighborhood over there, and it's... Uh, and and yeah, it's all called L.A., but uh, L.A. is essentially a, a meaningless term right. covering a it's huge a fifty mile swath of land that yeah of like, ruined countryside <laughs> yeah that too former orange groves <laughs> I found that it's it's like the city equivalent of of the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. if people who have never been to the Grand Canyon like you always see pictures of it growing up like oh it's this big giant canyon it's mm-hmm. huge it's this big hole in the ground. But the first time I went, I remember almost being physically brought to my knees by the absolute enormousness of this giant canyon. It's uh-huh. so large that your brain can't really wrap your head around it. Because you've got this idea in your head that it's big. But then you go and it's like, oh my lord, this is orders of magnitude larger than I could have imagined it yeah. would be. And L.A. is kind of like that in a way. It's Because it's, when you fly into L.A., you're flying over L.A. for a long time, going 400 miles an hour, or whatever the plane is doing when it's coming in for a landing. That's Probably true. not quite that fast. But uh, I don't know. I, I find it enigmatic. And I think those people in the Midwest are wrong. And I wish that they more of them would come and check it out and stay in the neighborhoods and talk to the locals and not just go down to the, the Chinese theater and look at the handprints in the, in the cement. It's so much more. It's so diverse and so interesting. Anyway... This week's guest on Independence Day, Mr. Robbie Folks. It's great to talk to you, man. It's great. Welcome to California, uh, longtime Chicagoan. And we've picked a track to play from you or by you from your most recent record. And this is a pretty special one. This was nominated for a Grammy, which is not, not no small deal for any musician. Uh, and tell me just a little bit about this song before we hear it. So uh, this song is uh, comes from a project that I was working on with a playwright and a uh, and a writer called uh, Brian Yorkie who lives here in town, and we were trying to come up with some kind of a theatrical property that would be a, a, a musical and and would be relatable, but would also relate to themes that are of interest to me. And we eventually settled on the trip that James Ag and Walker Evans made to Alabama in uh, 1936, where they documented the lives of uh, of uh, white. Uh, cotton tenants down there, and um, so the song is uh, the song sort of takes one level of abstraction higher than that. You know, it, it doesn't 
it, it uh, identifies highway numbers and some specifics of Alabama, and uh, but uh, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't go into the particular of James Agee's autobiography uh, or anything like that. So it could be anybody in the song traveling down there, and it's in the first person, and the theme of it. Uh, if this is not too um, uh, nebulous to to describe it this way, the theme of it is um, the paradoxes and sort of uncomfortable aspects of making artwork out of the sufferings of people. All right. My name is Joe Armstrong. This week's guest on Independence Day, Robbie Folks. The song is Alabama at Night. Let's check this out. A red tail hawk sat watchful at the faded edge of day. The phone poles and the pines rose from the scoured clay. The sun was slipping toward the gulf in its own good time And you would not think of death if you drove on past the signs The old men at the roadhouse weren't too polite to stare Where we'd come from wasn't home, and we were far from even there The camera around my neck drew suspicious eyes to me we were not there to talk, we were only there to see. When their faces had said nothing, it was that I stepped outside. And in the instant I knew I would not forget the sight. Alabama at night, Alabama. Nineteen, I scanned the road ahead Trying to let all I could see Cover up all that I'd read That hotel would not likely Let a working man lie down Like a current through its walls Ran the sorrow and sound And I knelt down to let it in me Sure it would come if I gave it to and I've fumbled amongst a hundred words, but words don't do it right. Alabama at night, Alabama at night. Sunlit rooms, the wealthy walk, and the pale, unshaven men to stand before each frame. Five seconds, maybe ten, and to unveil all the maker wanted to portray. But I'm not there to talk. This week's guest, Robbie Fultz, is playing what should turn into a residency on Sunday, December the first. That's Thanksgiving weekend. That's El Cid down on Sunset, forty-two twelve Sunset Boulevard. A child not far from birth. With the end etched in her eyes The morning star above her And a hymn upon the breeze But pours no sacred song Pours a disease And no hand reaches down from heaven And no one denies it might So patiently we wait here's on Alabama at night, Alabama at night, Alabama at night. The guest is Robbie Folks. My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day come to you. Well, not as often as we used to come to you, but I've been a busy man. A lot's going on in my world. Uh, but I'm glad to be back. Uh, this week's guest, Robbie Folks, is playing what should turn into a residency. On Sunday, December the 1st, that's Thanksgiving weekend. That's El Cid down on Sunset, 4212 Sunset Boulevard. That's right. Thanksgiving is late this year. Playing as a duo. Uh, are you going to have a full band scenario out here at some point, or do you just kind of call folks in as you need them? 
Well, the idea of the gig at El Cid is that it would be a residency. If the first one or two go well, then I'll be there the first X of every month, you know, maybe like the first Monday. Yeah. And uh, and beyond that, the idea is that, like, duo is probably my favorite format. And the idea is that I would pair off with various people that live here, uh, as well as people I've played with a long time, a lot of whom live in Chicago. And some of my uh, collaborators would be musicians, and maybe mixed in would be a few uh, comedians and improv people, but but mostly musicians. Yeah. So the first guy that I have up is a guy that I've played with since uh, 1990, and so he's my sort of longest-term continuous, you know, uh, sideman or accompanist. And his name is Robbie Gerso, and people that I think people that have seen me play more than once and are into what I do, like they're all going to know who that guy is. And we play off of each other really super intuitively. So we can, um, you know, for instance, we can we can start playing guitar lines against each other without having thought about it in advance and find ourselves complementing each other in ways that we don't even understand, you know, yeah. playing, little, playing the same thing, um, 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 playing harmony against each other or, or playing rhythmically in interesting ways against each other off the cuff. So uh, anyway, so it's a highly improvisational and, uh, for me, kind of an intimate experience working yeah. with him. Does he sing as well? So will there be good And he's a really harmonies? good singer, and we, we harmonize well. So we're sort of, in a lot of ways, we're sort of two halves of the same mind, and we share a lot of the same uh, sort of values and opinions about a lot of... Uh, American music, so yeah. yeah, we're really tied in together. I find that that musical simpatico thing mm-hmm. is a very, very interesting thing in music, especially like you mentioned in the duo format. There's, uh, I was very fortunate. The guitar player that I first played with in Chicago, and the first time I fronted a band for several years, uh, was a guy named Michael, and it is a guy named Michael. He's still alive. He ended up moving to Florida uh, on purpose, even. But uh, he, we had, we had something very much like that, you know, where he, we didn't write together so much, and he was a very adept guitar player, and I played mostly rhythm and sang all the lead vocals. But he knew where I was going a lot of times, almost before I knew where I was going musically, and would we'd play off each other very, very well like that. And I think it's really, really interesting. I mean, that can certainly happen in a larger ensemble as you add more people. I think. You know, the bands whose names we know or household names maybe have that. I imagine U2 is like that after all these years. They know what they're all doing. They're functioning as one unit. Right. And there's those studies I've seen that, you know, like in choirs. I've had a rich history in choral music, and people's brainwaves line up when you're all performing together. You know, yeah. do, you, do you feel like an elevated sense of, like, place or time, or does that shift around when you're experiencing that? Because that's the way it happens for me. I feel really bowled over by it a lot of the times. And, you know, when you think about it, it's both mysterious and not mysterious, you know. In the moment of experiencing it, it's it does knock you out. But uh, but as you say, it's like, well, it's like a lot of things. It's like women's menstrual cycles aligning if they live together for a while. It's like having a, a friend or a family member that, you know, that's a years-long relationship and you each know what the other is going to say or right. are unsurprised and can almost mouth the sentences with the other person. So it's exactly that way, but in music. And overall, it's a, a totally pleasurable feeling, yeah. you know, of two minds kind of aligning in harmony right. like that. I've always felt that being in a band was like being married to three other people. Right. You know, and all that that implies. Without the sex, often. Or usually, yeah. usually. Uh, but, uh, and when I say all that that implies, because like any, like any intimate relationship, even if it's not physically intimate, it's emotionally intimate, it's intellectually intimate. Right. Uh, there are, you're still different people. But I think there's a complementary aspect to that, for sure, especially when you're creating all these vibrations in the world, music, and, and spitting them out there for an audience to hear. And people, you can feel that, I think, as an audience. You can tell when artists have that simpatico or that unique thing. I hope so. And it's definitely identifiable a lot of times by its absence because there are yeah. a lot of band leaders out there, I find, that aren't very good band leaders. And you can read that in the show when you... Uh, uh, I shouldn't say the band. It's a band that I admire a lot, and they're, and a couple of them are friends of mine now too. But my son and I were watching old '80s footage of this, of this band that, and they don't get along with each other, and they're playing great together, but they're facing forward. They're sort of on, on islands, you know, the four yeah. of them, and um, 
so this is a band. Uh, this is a this is a a, um, a band example of what I'm talking about. But the band leader example of what I'm talking about, which is more common, is a guy out front, and the people around him are in and somewhat unpleasant situation you know they're not allowed to play what they might want to play right. they're not allowed to live in the way they want to live on the on the bus and so forth and and it's a, and it's an atmosphere of tension and dominance by the leader without um, uh, you know, the leader sort of has to have appreciation of the humanity of the other people around him right. for the whole thing to convey that relaxation to the audience. And as long as you're just clued in, you're in the audience and clued in on the leader and love the record and are paying attention to him or her, it's not a big deal. But if you are like cluing in on the whole picture, uh, I find a lot of the time I can I can read this thing that you're talking about. Right. Uh, this is not a pleasant social situation going on. Yeah. Uh, What's that James? There's a James McMurtry lyric that says, you know, the about a, a guy who kind of in and out of bands his whole life, and he's it's mostly about the relationship with a, a woman, but it talk, he's kind of a hard knock story. I forget the Carlos and something or other, but there's a lyric where he says, "Well, he rode the bus while the singer flew," mm-hmm. and that's what I think is so genius about James McMurtry is that he can. A lot of people do this too, but he has a way of. There's so much implied in that line. There's a whole book behind that line, that right. one line, and I think that's what's unique about songwriting. We'll get into songwriting in a little bit here. I want to get a little bit of biographical information out of you first. I'm having a wonderful time talking to you. I hope you're enjoying the experience. No, I'm out of uh, here. See yeah, you. see ya. Yeah. Chicagoans are different. They would never tell you. They would endure everything. <laughs> they would endure it. They would just endure. Uh, why don't you play a live song? We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about your up, your uh, upbringing and what got you into music. So what's the first song we've got here? So the first song up is called America's a Hard Religion. And, uh, well, I mentioned the the project about James Agee a second ago, and uh, this is from the same group of songs. This is, uh, this is a, uh, I guess it's kind of a protest song. Oh, <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot more of those coming up in the next few years. I mean, some people got in kind of ahead of the curve. Guys like Billy Bragg have been doing protest songs all along. Uh, there was a Broken Record, uh, Malcolm Gladwell podcast on protest songs not too terribly long ago. Uh, and uh, so here's Robbie Folks. This is his protest song. The song is called America's a Hard Religion. Thank you for listening to Independence Day. We'll be back right after this. Sky, some each crossed the ground. There been backs turned to wool, heavy and above since down. Scratching pool from this earth, what gold it make it? Fattening on beasts to come, laboring now to live. And America is a hard religion, not just anyone may enter. America is a hard religion. Surrender Sent to a savage land Mother knows not why Plant a seed in rocky soil And perhaps to die Freedom come in May To this child instead Freedom comes, freedom goes Father is surely dead And America is a hard religion do surrender Paid by thanks don't praise yet we soldier on trials do test our hearts doubts to make us strong All my tears surely gone after I fly away And America is a hard religion Not just anyone may enter 
religion Some never do surrender Hello friends, music fans, my name is Joe Armstrong, you are listening to the Independence Day Podcast. This week's guest, so happy, so proud to bring you Robbie Folks. I think of you as a Chicago artist, I think I always will, but you're not actually from Chicago, even though you're largely identified with Chicago. Like you said before, you're kind of tumbling west at a very slow rate, just kind of like I did. Uh, but you're from originally Carolinas, is what you kind of so considered. Born in to be? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, correct. Yeah. Then my parents moved around almost every year. It's like the old Rodney Dangerfield line. My parents moved a lot, but I always found them. Right. And uh, we, they we, they moved basically southward, series of small towns in Pennsylvania, and then Virginia and North Carolina. And we ended up settling in a little town called uh, Creedmoor, which is near Durham, and uh, and uh, bought a little farm out there and. Uh, so that's where I went to junior high and high school. And um, so I, I don't know what to call home. I mean, I feel yeah. um, I feel emotionally tied to uh, Pennsylvania and, uh, and uh, middle of Virginia and North Carolina, maybe North Carolina more than the others, and also to Chicago from having spent so long there. Yeah. What was your neighborhood in Chicago, out of curiosity? Uh, I lived in a couple, but... Uh, since my marriage, I lived in Logan Square, and then in uh, Brookfield, and then in Lindenhurst, and mm-hmm. then in Wilmette. And uh, when I first got to town, I lived in, I don't know, two or three other neighborhoods, too. Forgive me for doing this, but every time I hear Chicago's like, uh, suburbs or street names, I have to dip into my Chicago dialect that I don't really, never really had, like the, the Pat, you know, uh, uh, Brookfield... Uh, down there, you lived... Uh, what neighborhood did you say you lived in a second ago? I was going to say that one. The uh, Brookfield. Uh, yeah, we lived in uh, Naperville. Yeah, Naperville. The Jules. It's a, I people kind of think it's charming out here. It's different in Chicago when people talk like that. It's everywhere. an ugly freaking accent, in my opinion. But uh, it's a what? I'm sorry. Ugly accent. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is what it is, and it's different too. You know, just like any accent, it's different on the south side than it is on the west side and the north side and the suburbs. The short A kind of bugs me. And and yeah. that thing. Oh my god! And totally. That's one that we get out of the, the young girls. Oh, totally. Anyway, enough Chicago inside baseball. You Okay, so coming from Pennsylvania, then some of the Carolinas, uh, I've always heard that you come from a musical family. Can you describe what that was like in your family? The, the example I'll give, like in my northern family loved music. I, I, I'm, kinda, I'm, I'm mixed breed. I'm half southern, half northern. Okay. Raised in the north, born in the south. And... But they didn't play music around the house so much. There was choir and, and, and uh, church choirs and bands and rock and roll bands. But in the South, we'd go down there for the Armstrong family reunion. And at the end of the day, guys would just pull guitars out of pickup backs of pickup trucks and fiddles. And they would sit around and just play music. Mm-hmm. Like, what, tell me what your experience was like with music growing up. Well, yeah, I did have that experience. And uh, you know, when we weren't listening, we were just playing music together a lot of the time. And um, siblings, uh, one who's eleven years younger than me, so it's mostly you know my, most of my formative experience was me and my dad, and mom and their friends, and um, and I didn't even play a lot with a lot of people my own age until uh, until I was uh, an older teenager. But at the time, it was uh, you know I just took it for granted. That this is reality, yeah, and it's sort of become a more sacred experience for me as an older man in retrospect. And it's become something that I really regret not having passed on to my own kids. You know, it's like we we always had music in the house and we always, you know, it was always in the air. And and, and they both play instruments, my, uh, at least uh, not my oldest, but my two younger sons do. Um, but... Uh, like somebody sent me a gospel record that they were working on the other day. I was listening while I was doing the dishes last night and uh, singing along with all the songs. I thought, well, I know all the songs. The reason I know all the songs, it's a common cultural inheritance to be able to sing I'll Fly Away and Beautiful Life and all these old country gospel songs. But then I thought, no, the reason I really know them is that my parents taught them to me and they were in the air when I was a kid. And that kind of um, cultural inheritance is what I have... uh, Failed to pass down to my own kids, so um, so it is a regret with me. And 
although probably not a regret with them. I think they're happy not to know the words to all fly away. You know, my kids, yeah. they're more members of modern society, but... Uh, Are you saying that you're not a member of modern society, or...? Really not, yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of renaissance man about you. You know, in doing research to talk about you and trying to come up with a, what I hope are insightful questions, you've hosted a... So far, no, no good, but we'll see. Right. <laughs> uh, well, there's always something to aspire to, Robbie. A little self-deprecation half goes of the a interview. long way. Stay yeah. tuned, folks. Maybe the third, fourth, or fifth half of the interview <laughs> will finally get somewhere close to average. Uh, but there is a bit of renaissance, man, to you and what you go about, because you, you, you've written about music, you've hosted a satellite radio show about music. Uh, and I think it's different. You know, different people approach their art in different ways. I mean, you, I feel uh, maybe akin to you in that regard, where it's not enough just to perform it or to write it or to enjoy it and love it and listen to it, but I have to, it has to infuse into almost every aspect of my life in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and you think that comes from your family as well, or is that just a, a, a nature thing about you? I think, uh, I don't know, music's kind of... Um a magical thing, you know. I was doing a karaoke night last night at a little bar and um, with a bunch of people, and and, and it's a very uh, obvious uh, thing that when a song starts, well, it's a little like what we were talking about before with the with the hive mind. A song starts, everybody knows the words, everybody knows the tune, and everybody's happy, everybody's friendlier with each other. People right. dance and makes their bodies move. It's really a sui generis thing. Music is in that way, but. Um, and now I'm forgetting what the we were originally talking about family. What was the oh just where the uh, well it's, it's meandering, which is kind of the nature of the show. Oh yeah, but. the different aspects of it. Um, uh, so that's a starting point. Like music is universally important to everybody, but um, for myself, I think it's probably more all encompassing than it was maybe to my. My parents or or a non a lot of non musicians, and the way that it is is that um, on a daily level, um, there are sort of ritualistic things, uh, singing and playing that uh, that I do for pleasure, but also because I need to keep the um, the musculature the in shape. So the athletic aspect of music is a constant and a daily thing. Um, and but the other aspect of it is the uh, more cerebral thing. You know, in terms of thinking about music, thinking about, um, and which relates to writing about it, putting it into words, talking about it with people, um, that's not just a, a masturbatory or a, a pleasurable thing. It's a practical thing for musicians, and it's uh, it's it's really important. I think this would be corroborated by people that know a lot more about music in a theoretical way than I do. That to spend a certain amount of the day thinking hard about music is a crucial part of being a, a good musician. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, is your experience like mine in that it, it's, it seems like it's permeated most aspects of your life? You said your kids kind of play, but maybe not as much as you did. You came out of a musical family. I mean, I, I, I guess I could say I came out of a musical family. Like my mom sang in church choir. I remember singing, sitting in the choir loft during church, which, which for us was Catholic back then, uh -huh. and hearing the multi-part music. And there was so much musical education happening for me, mm -hmm. just sitting there and hearing those parts, is it clicked on different elements of my brain. The music wasn't just a melody. Mm -hmm. Like for people I feel who aren't musicians necessarily, they may not even hear those other things or even know what they are, that there's multiple voices singing in contrary motion or unison or... Uh, I'm not even sure what I'm even getting at, but it's just an interesting. Uh, this it's endlessly fascinating to me, like how Sometimes music. Sometimes you into wonder if knowing more about it takes robs you of some of the pleasure of it because it's uh, it becomes a challenge sometimes to listen to stuff that you understand the construction of it and not just pay attention to the construction, but just sit there and appreciate it. It's an interesting point because I have albums, songs that I can play note for note that I studied endlessly, just mm -hmm. every little quarter note bend, and is this particular player sliding here or bending up to that mm -hmm. note? Is that run, you know, that, run, that, that particular solo is buried in reverb. What is he really, Gilmore was always a big in, influence for me. Like, mm -hmm. what's he really doing there? Because he's not reinventing the wheel, but there's something that Gilmore does that is very, very uniquely him. Mm -hmm. And uh, But then there's other music that I, I almost shy away from even... I could analyze it in, in my head. I know what a one chord is and a four chord. I can hear all those things just having been in music my whole life. But 
I have intentionally not sat down to learn it because I want it to be a listening experience rather than a performing experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like not monetizing something in your life that's a hobby because then once it's not a hobby anymore, now you have to do it. Mm-hmm. I have a particular friend who works in the brewing industry where I'm, a, I'm kind of a, a beer nerd. And he keeps wanting me to get into, you know, do some work in the beer industry. or the, And I don't want to do it because I just do it because I like it. I just want to get drunk. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to get wasted, everybody. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just like that. I like it. That's my pressure valve is to go to the pub and have a pint with my friends. Mm-hmm. I don't want that to be a duty that I have to go on Monday and then Tuesday and then Wednesday and right, then Thursday. Yeah. I like sex, but I don't want to be a prostitute necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Folks, everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting. I, I like where we're going with this. <laughs> well, maybe I don't. I don't know. Uh, so now let's get back to biography just a little bit. So you, you're you playing music with your family. Did guitar itself wind up being something you chose, or was you you're kind of the odd man out? I've heard Jason Isbell say growing up that he wound up playing mandolin initially because everybody else played guitar, and his grandpa was like, here, play this, kid. We need one of these. Did you pick guitar? Well, I love playing the mandolin and the banjo, and I've tried to play the fiddle and some other things. And the guitar sort of emerged as my, as the thing I was most comfortable with when I was an early teenager. Probably by the time I was 13 or 14, it was pretty clear that that was going to be my thing. And, um, and I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if, uh, if I'd have just spent more time on the, on the fiddle or the banjo, yeah. if that would have come along. In time, but uh, yeah, that's a doors that just closed for me, I guess. Yeah, and you've done something which I think is is particularly hard to do in the music business, which is earn stripes as a guitar player. You're a very facile player. You're very there's a lot of movement in your playing. There's a lot of chromatic runs. It's almost reminiscent of David Rawlings in a way from Gillian Welch and David Rawlings. He throws a lot of dissonant notes in and resolves them, or maybe doesn't. You know, so you're not just strumming along as an accompaniment to your playing. Like your playing, when I watch you play, is very deft and very, there's a lot going on there. And it adds richness to what you're doing. But being an accomplished guitar player, I think, is hard because guitar is a very approachable instrument. With, you know, three chords and an old Yamaha or an old Martin or old Gibson, you can go a long way. You can front bands. You can have entire careers mm-hmm. like that. Move that capo around. You've got all the keys. Mm-hmm. You know, a handful of chords. Uh, being an accomplished guitar player is especially difficult. Uh, I'm not sure there's even a question here, but uh, kudos, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know how difficult it is compared to other instruments, but I mean, the, the doing something with your hands at the same time that you're singing and um, yeah. emoting a song. That's definitely a little bit of a, a juggling yeah. act. Well, I'm not even saying when I when I say that. Let me clarify. I don't necessarily mean that it's harder to do that than it is with other instruments. Uh-huh. I mean, my girlfriend played bagpipes for years. Yeah, that's, oboe and bagpipes, all absurdly or pedal steel. I think pedal, oh, pedal steel, steel players operate Forget on a whole it. other level. Yeah, like that's they're they're all that's other that's next level stuff. Right. But uh, what I mean by that is that there's a lot of guitar players in the world. A yeah. lot. It's probably yeah. the most played instrument. In the world, or at least in American culture, so to have your portable. own style is more of a more of an accomplishment, it's, right? I guess what I'm saying is, in that field, in that pantheon, mm-hmm. to be an accomplished guitar player is it feels like a different sort of accomplishment or, or a greater accomplishment, right? Um, and you know, and, and so much so as to teach it, so much so as to have an, to have an artist and have a style. You know, if you're producing a record, oh yeah, we want to get so and so for this part. Oh, let's call Robbie Folks. He's really good at that oh, stuff. I wish. Yeah, I wish I would get more of those calls. Yeah, well, you and me both, brother. But uh-huh. uh, but but you've got a career at this. You've got multiple albums. You've been doing this a very long time. So and you you teach like I was saying at the Old Town School, which mm-hmm. is a unique thing. People who aren't from Chicago, what would you call it? Like a it's not a trade school, uh, community education. What would you call it, Old Town School? Uh, it's a nonprofit. Uh, uh, institution that offers, yeah, it offers lessons to anybody that pays the money, and uh, and it has concerts and it has sort of it does sort of community work too, I guess. Yeah, the original one was right across the street from my best friend's college apartment. Was that on Armitage, Armitage. or even earlier? Correct, on Armitage. Okay. Unless, well, there may be one before that, but that's the first one that I remember. Okay. Uh, so you must have taught at that one then, because you were back away. I taught there, and uh, I think f- initially in 1959, maybe it was on North Avenue, and then it was on Armitage, and now it's uh, it's um, mainly on Lincoln, 
So it's had a couple of different yeah. locations. It's expanded and got you know snazzier over the yeah. years. Yeah. But, uh, but I did that from um, I don't know for about twelve or thirteen years in there. From when I first moved to Chicago till till I started to put out records on my under my own name. And at that point, I was just sort of traveling too much to keep a steady lesson thing going at the same time. But uh, yeah, it's totally totally useful again to be able to think about. To put uh, your inchoate ideas about music into the form of hard thought and to articulate that to another person that you're trying to instruct or whatever, that's, it's, I mean, for me, it's it's difficult and, and it was useful to yeah. go through that exercise. Most teachers will tell you, at least the ones that I know, they learn. Oh, the, sure. The process of teaching someone else how to do something or, or to do something well, ideally. Sure. Uh, you learn. You know, it's kind of like having kids keeps you young. I think teaching keeps your brain nimble. And you know, really centrally, what I learned over those years, mostly from private students, is that the people that paid the most attention and did what I asked them to do week after week, sometimes for years, uh, really judiciously paying attention to me and, and doing what I asked them to do, um, eventually, well, really soon, you hit a wall and you see, well, you can you can do everything that I give you, but and we can go on for years like this without making you a musician. And this relates to what we were just saying about uh, about about styles and about learning. You know, if you sit down and you copy what David Gilmore is doing yourself, or if I copy what, what Doc Watson is doing, which I might do some days, you find yourself sort of just trying to get into somebody's head. And is he bending? Is he sliding? Is he like, how can I make my hands do exactly that sound, and before you know it, uh, if you really work at it, you can kind of get inside another guy's brain like that. But the more that you get inside it, and um, and sort of uh, and sort of uh, make th- that other guy's brain instinctual to yourself, the farther you are away from the real goal of being a musician, yeah. because the ultimate. The ultimate point is to develop your own voice yeah. and your own style, and you can just really disappear down this other yeah. route of copying. I feel very, very fortunate. Somewhere along the line, I learned, which for me was my most one of my most important lessons in music and then in life by proxy, which was I feel like, I mean, and some people might say I'm still terrible, and that's fine, but I didn't feel like I was a, a musician worthy of anything until I stopped trying to be other people. Right. And I tr- and I, I it occurred to me, well I I you know maybe it was instinctual, maybe not. I had to find my own voice or I wanted to find my own voice. And even though I revered players like Gilmore and Knopfler and um Gary Loris from the Jayhawks or you know and, uh, players that I've loved over the Buddy Miller, players that I've loved over the years Mike Campbell. I'm if I'm ever going to I mean unless I want to just play in cover bands, which I is fine. It's a fine way to make a living, and you can make a fine living doing that. I wanted to be an artist with a capital A, and I had better figure out my own thing, whatever that is. And that's a combination of what I would just instinctually do mm-hmm. and what I'm being taught and what other teachers are trying to impart in me or on me. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you've done that. <laughs> it's impossible not to love all these guys and to want to sound as good as yeah. they sound. So it's it's easy for us to sit here and say it. I find it like an experience in life and from thinking about the the players that I know, it's it's hard it's harder to implement than to than yeah. it is to talk about. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Robbie Folks is my guest on Independence Day. Let's hear another song. What is this next one you've got queued up for us? I mean, this is a quieter one, I think. What is this? So this next one is uh kind of about uh it, the seed of it was a lady that I knew. Oh, she's a lady now. She's a girl in high school, I guess. But uh, yeah, a girl I knew that I met on the street uh, a little after high school and had a memorable but uh, fairly banal encounter with. And uh, and it's a meditation on getting older and making choices and having doors closed behind you. It's called Sarah Jane. I'm looking forward to hearing this very much. But real quick before we do, I just wanted to mention you said the word incohe. A second ago, and then you said just another five dollar word, just a minute. So kudos to you for vocabulary. Oh, what did I, I, I say it. besides inchoate? Uh, you said something just a second ago. Well, you said very early on. You said enormousness, which um, resonated with me because most people these days say enormity, which uh-huh. has always meant atrocity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's useful to have those two words: enormity and enormousness. And uh, you don't hear the latter very if much. If lyrics are your stock in trade, 
it's these differences and these distinctions are very, very important to me. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about songwriting and how you approach that. But first, let's hear this. This is the song Sarah Jane, the artist this week on Independence Day, Robbie Folks. So happy to bring you this. Check it out. I was young in Charlottesville That was a long, long time Now I'm homesick and I'm poor Poor is at least no crime Well, as long as I'm a dollar down Tomorrow might get better If I could erase each place I've gone I could stop singing forever For my Sarah Jane Long years since I met you Oh my Sarah Jane How many till I can forget you Dreamed about Tennessee Woke up thinking the man I was Is not who I was born to be Filled my pockets with shells from the bay Kids far away need my name I'll be home by Saturday And put my dream in behind me Oh, my Sarah Jane, long years since I met you. Oh, sweet Sarah Jane, how many till I can forget you? My name is Joe Armstrong. I am the host and producer and everything else around here at the Independence Day podcast. Thank you ever so much for listening to this show. I know there are essentially endless entertainment options these days, and it means a lot to me that you've taken the time to check this one out. I do my very best to bring you musicians from around the country and around the world. Some of them are local. Some of them are legends, like this guy sitting in front of me right now, Mr. Robbie Falk, Chicagoans, both of us, in exile now in Los Angeles. Robbie, how are you? Never better. Never better. Glad to hear it. Now, the, the, the weather, man, you can't. It's, it's, this is the time of year we're back home. It's late fall. Right. It's, uh, it's pretty cold. It's pretty gray. I would say miserable. Uh, and here, like the nights are chilly, but it's, it's, it's very, very pleasant. People always say, I like to, the change. They'll say if they live in Chicago or Minneapolis, yeah. I really like the seasons. But it's. Uh, it's a smaller change, but it's a definite change here. The thing is, here it's every day. You wake up, yeah. and it's cool, yeah. and you have to wear a long sleeve shirt when you go out. And this is true, I think. I've only lived here a year, but what months? I think that might be true of all except maybe three months. Yeah. That it's cool in the morning, it's hot by noon, and then it's cool again by six yeah. at night. And yeah, my guitar's had trouble adjusting to this. If I leave yeah. it out of the case overnight, it's, it's way uh, sharp usually. Yeah. Whereas in Chicago, for some reason, when that change is more related to seasons than to yeah. you know daily cycles, it's it's it suffers on a seasonal level. I guess not a daily. Call level. me paranoid, but I tend to, with the exception of that one over there, I tend to leave all my guitars in cases because of earthquakes. Uh huh. Now you know I don't think I'm a paranoid person, but we uh-huh. live in an area that's geologically active. Were you here for the one that happened around uh, in July? You, was that I was the, out of town. My wife okay. was around, yeah. So you haven't actually experienced uh, uh, a serious... I've been very lucky. I yeah. got here to town right when the uh, polar vortex or whatever the oh, hell yeah. it was was happening in Chicago. Oh. <laughs> Missed that, and then yeah. was out traveling when the earthquake happened here. So. Well played. Yes. Well, well done on, on both counts. Well, well played, done. sir. 
Uh, well played. So uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to talk about songwriting. This is something that you've been paid to do, which is, uh, you know, a lot. <laughs> Can you believe it? I know. It's amazing. A lot of people who I revere did that, did stints as professional songwriters for a while. John Hyatt did that for a while. Steve Rill did that for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of other artists like, off the top of my head. You know, there's guys like, we, it's the second time his name has come up, but Gary Loris from the Jayhawks will get paid to write with the Dixie Chicks or mm-hmm. to write with other artists. Mm-hmm. And to get to do that, you know, it must have been a dream come true for one thing, right? Yeah, you're talking about my music row job yeah. like all those years ago. Yeah. It was a dream come true because it happened out of office temping, and I was so uh, Whoa, close really? to the edge of suicide after uh, a couple years of office temping and local gigging in Chicago that when I got the chance to to write songs for um, for money, at which point I uh, quit quit the straight work and ever since have just been doing music. And at the time, it was sort of an evenly divided between lessons at Old Town School and um, and uh, and the weekly salary from the Music Row gig. It was just it was just divine. And as far as songwriting, it was divine because I, I was really learning, you know. Uh, and it was learning how to write for that particular market, which um, parts of it I, I was not at all interested in, and still I'm not interested in a lot of commercial country music. You know, it's just not my cup of tea, but to um, to hook up with other uh, writers and to sort of network and to find out what other people think makes a good song and how they go about it is totally, totally useful. And for me, it demystified writing a lot because, you know, the idea that you're going to go out and wait for lightning to strike you or... Um, or not think as you're going about what's a verse and what's a chorus and the relationship of one chord to another chord and to be that kind of uh, idiot savant in your approach to the craft of it. I mean, maybe for some people it works, but what I found was that the more that I knew, uh, just the surer I was about what I was doing, and I was able to turn myself into a guy that wrote, I don't know, came up with 10 songs a year, out of which maybe one was something that I'd end up yeah. keeping in my catalog, to a guy that wrote, you know, over 50 songs a year, and, uh, you know, maybe the same proportion, maybe, you know, five or six would, would stay yeah. in the catalog, but still, the more that you come up with, uh, the more you keep. It's a muscle just like anything else. Right. The examples I always cite when I'm talking with people are Bray Bradbury would get up every morning and sit down in his typewriter, and he yeah. said he would write for an hour. Right. On particularly bad days, maybe he would just hit the letter Q over and over and over again. You know, some days are like that, right? But it's a muscle, just like any other muscle. When I say muscle, I mean songwriting or being artistic in that way. And I think it's very easy for people to get precious about it and like, oh, I I have to absolutely wait for lightning to strike, like to use your metaphor. Uh, And there is a little bit of that. Lightning does strike sometimes. I mean, I call it kind of like the songwriting guff or the songwriting gods out there in the Mm -hmm. ether. I feel like they're they're delivering things to me, and I'm kind of a channel, and I don't want to get precious about that. But I will say that the more I do it, the more that those songwriting gods are willing to then deign to give me a better idea or a more interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, Brian Adams said that he wrote hundreds of songs before he felt he wrote a good one and wouldn't show them to anyone. Right. Uh, other people like that are like that too. And that ratio, I find it improves, but it doesn't improve really strongly. And it's frustrating work to try to write a song. It's uh, probably the hardest work that I've done uh, in my life. And I find it liberating to sort of bear in mind that that ratio really is like like I'll th- be throwing 90% of this away anyway so right. so don't get too like just uh, exasperated with the whole yeah. thing because um, most of it is going to end up in the garbage and um, when the goods when the good thing strikes and you're able to widen that that um, that little uh, wedge that of inspiration that you get into uh, a verse and then a chorus in a verse and then uh, a whole song it's uh it's a great thing, but it's it's a pretty rare thing. It's yeah. wonderful when it happens. And I feel like technology has changed that. And I don't even just mean digital technology. Uh-huh. And it ties into how we opened our conversation today, talking about our families and playing, sitting around at their family reunion, whatever. Uh, the once upon a time, musicians kind of bubbled up in little small areas, and they didn't. You know, they might have heard a phonograph, a seventy-eight, mm-hmm. or you know, before radio even. So you you were all little fiefdoms all over the world, all mm-hmm. over the country. And then, as music technology, the replication and the ability for people to play back music in their own homes, phonographs, uh, that technology is not that old in right. the grand scheme of human history. 
and then people could then cop things off of records and be influenced that way by people from other places in the world or other places in the country. And then as it became more and more and more available, you know, I think it's very intimidating as young writers, even if it was for me, listening to classic rock radio in Chicago, listening to The Loop and WCKG back in the day, and thinking, hearing Sgt. Pepper and hearing Elvis Costello and hearing these storied Tom Waits, these storied songwriters, Tom Petty, and think, how in God's name am I going to compete with that and be myself at the same time? It was very intimidating getting started with that. You know, and this ties me into something because we're almost out of time, but in, in country music, I think a very interesting thing is the concept of the cliche because it can be a pejorative or not a pejorative, but you're working in tried and true idioms, walking up to the four chord like you do, the bluegrass turnaround. You know, these, it gives you a set of rules. Do you find that to be easier or harder working within that framework of country music? As a writer, I should say. I, uh, I don't know if it's easier and harder, but I, I, uh, I really relate to the balance of cliche, non-cliche in country music and trying to find that smooth conversation. It's conversational, but not quite conversational a lot of the time because it's whittled down to an essence. And just to, it, it just happens I'm writing about Gordon Lightfoot right now, a piece for a, a magazine. And, uh, and I think a, a good example that, that I put in that, in that piece Early morning rain starts out with four lines. In the early morning rain, with a dollar in my hand and an aching in my heart and my pockets full of sand. And I think that's really well done little half stanza right there. And if you think about the cliche uh, content of it, like in the rain, standing in the rain is kind of a self-pitying male songwriter (laughs) cliche. Trope, yeah. But to put the early part into it, I think really dignifies that line like it's the eight o'clock in the morning rain it has a special quality that's not the 10 30 rain right it's especially bleak the next two lines are kind of totally cliched the aching in the heart and the uh and the dollar in the hand it's like yeah 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 and you're almost kind of like you you get a little antsy to get yeah why am i listening to this to something fresh and then it arrives right by the fourth line there and my pockets Full of sand. It's so satisfying to hear the exact rhyme and to hear an image that you really have to chew on just for that second right. that it hits your ear. Right. And it's perfect when you think about it. It makes sense. It rhymes. It's uh, it's mellifluous. It's just a perfect little half stanza. Yeah. And and that to me is a good example of the balance of non cliche and cliche in a song. Like uh, cliche isn't really a strong criticism of, of music lyrics right. because they hit your ear at the same rate that you, that the listener, you know, the listener has to absorb them at the rate that right. you put them out there. And so it's important that, that, that they don't exist on this, at least for country music and music that I relate to, yeah. that they don't exist on this level where you have to like chew and chew all the time and 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 take a scythe and get through this thicket of abstractions to get yeah, to yeah. some idea what's going on. But that it meets you halfway in language that, you know, just makes the whole journey easier for the listener. Yeah, there was a whole article, a very long article, not too long ago, about Wichita linemen Mm -hmm. and what this particular author of this piece believed to be one of the greatest written lines in modern Mm -hmm. pop music, which was, and I need you more than I want you, and I want you for all time. Mm -hmm. And what's leading up to that and what that song's about. Because if you think about it on the surface, why would I listen to a song about a guy fixing high-tension wires? Right. It doesn't doesn't even seem like a romantic idea or right. ideal, but then the way he threw that in there, and the way it, the way it builds up to it, and then the tension and release after it. I, I mean, there, there are whole podcasts dedicated to just songwriting, and I wish you and I had more time to get into this concept of it uh, as someone who writes songs and someone who uh, is a very accomplished songwriter. Uh, but the cliche almost has to be there. It's almost like the idea that. Uh, um, Stereotypes, there's an element to truth to stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of almost the same concept. You need that hook to kind of pull people in and make it relatable. And to your point exactly, and that's when you deliver that curveball line that slides in and go, oh, that's why I'm listening to this, and that's why that line might be one of the greatest written lines. So endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, Jimmy Webb is probably more of a risk-taking lyricist than a lot of lyricists, I think, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it. And and we are going in a slightly different place talking about specificity of a of a situation of that sort. I am a lineman 
for the county. Well, really, I'm not. Like, why should I listen to the rest of this? Yeah. But the the language part of it, which we were talking about a moment ago, uh, well, I'd have to look at a lyric sheet to be sure, but I think all the language in that song is pretty simple words and pretty straightforward Hemingway-esque in that concepts. Way. And and maybe there's a few edge of cliches in it. I, I want you more than need you is, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry, need you more than want you. Uh, we're close to cliched language in there. So anyway, it's different between language and, and situation. But but uh, Jimmy is uh, Jimmy goes out to the edge and makes it work. Yeah, it's like Icarus. Sometimes Icarus makes it. He flies too close to the sun. What makes it? Icarus. The, Icarus. Thank you. Sometimes Icarus. Icarus flies too close to the sun, but then sometimes Icarus lands right. I back wish there down. was a rhyme for Icarus, but licorice. Licorice. Really yeah, comes there close. are some words that are hard to rhyme. Words I've been trying to write into songs for years and years and years and years. Robbie, I wish we had more time. Man, you've got to get to the airport here. Let's play this. Hear this last song, and then we'll wrap up. What's What's this last one you've got for us? So uh, this last one is kind of a bluegrass uh, flavored thing called "Sometimes the Grass Is Really Greener," and it's about. A guy that uh, makes the same journey that I kind of did, which was to take his dad's guitar. In my case, it was my dad's uh, uh, Martin Triple O Twenty Eight, and uh, went to New York City, which uh, which I did, and tried to make it uh, playing bluegrass, which is kind of a dumb idea. But uh, <laughs> if you're in New York and bluegrass is your thing, then I guess that's that's what you do. And the guy in the song, uh, well, I've already given away two thirds of the song, yeah. so let's just hear it. And the bluegrass, yeah. what's the bluegrass joke? I'd like this goes out to both our fans. <laughs> All right, Robbie Falk's in Independence Day. The song is Sometimes the Grass is Really Greener. Sometimes the grass is really greener and B-flat. Back high in the Blue Ridge Mountains It was tough work Brown dirt and bluegrass songs Sweet hickory filled the air Daddy's love was hard to bear If I knew how rich I was I'd not have gone But the city called my name And I came a-running With my young man's hopes And my daddy's old guitar I played the dives And paid some dues Singing every tune I knew And them homesick ones I sang The best by far Now I've seen the sun go down On the streets of New York town And I've watched it from the hills Above Virginia Beauty is what the eye beholds One man's dirt's another's gold But sometimes the grass is really greener Company man confessed he liked me But he'd have to shave a few rough edges down Cut my hair like Brooks and Dunn's Trade the banjo for some drums Cause no one would buy that old high lonesome sound Now I don't know just what this deal has got me I've gained not a fan and I lost the ones I had I've worn my heart right through my sleeve Singing a song I don't believe I believe I'll go back home to mom and dad Now I've seen the sun go down On the streets of New York town And I've watched it from the hills of old Virginia Beauty is what the eye beholds One man's dirt's another's gold But sometimes the grass is really greener On this farm they'll lay me down And the hills will hear my song Cause it's there that I belong Man you just can't shake old roots From the southern ground Now I've seen the sun go down On this the streets of New York town And I've watched it from the hills of old Virginia Beauty's what the 
hogs, one man's dirt's another's gold. But sometimes the grass is really greener. Sometimes the grass is really greener. It has been my honor, my privilege to sit here with Robbie Folks. Uh, legendary singer-songwriter based mostly out of Chicago these days, uh, getting his California, I was going to say sea legs, but that's a mixed metaphor that doesn't even really make sense. Getting your sand legs, getting your palm tree legs. In-N-Out Burger, have you discovered In-N-Out Burger yet? Not a meat eater. Not a meat eater. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that concept here in a minute. But if there's an In-N-Out okra, I'm in. I would kill babies if they would make a veggie burger of some kind. And there are so many fantastic options now. It's got to be inevitable, Because right? I go long periods without eating meat, and that's what I miss the most, is it's just a regular cheeseburger. Oh, and yeah. the Impossible, the Beyond, there's a bunch of them. They're so close now that it's completely fine, because mostly I'm about the cheese and the condiments anyway. Right. Uh, you've got a, a residency coming up, hopefully the first one of many. This is at El Cid on Sunset on Sunday, December the 1st, not too terribly far from where we are right now. You've got a bunch of other tour dates, which I've got around here somewhere. Here we go. Uh, for the rest of the year, starting back up in January, you'll be in Baton Rouge. You're going to be in Winter Haven, Florida, Miami, Chico, all over doing what you do, just like you've done for a long time. Uh, any last words you can leave our audience with in terms of uh, advice for musicians? Come to see my show. Okay. You'll, you'll gain a lot from it, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> I, I, would, I would second that. RobbieFolks.com is where you can learn everything you need to know about him. R-O-B-B-I-E-F-U-L-K-S. He's also on Twitter at the same thing. He's also on Facebook. It's been an honor to sit with you, man. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope, uh, I hope we get time to chat about this stuff again someday. Thanks for having me, Joe. It is my pleasure. So thank you to Robbie Folks, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The soulful Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Thanks, Loke. Independence Day theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Check them out, too, for Independence Day. As always, I am Joe Armstrong. If you do one thing today, please be good to one another. <laughs>